If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be on page 846 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. If you want to follow along in one of those Bibles, we'll be in Mark chapter 10 today. And just want to thank Kyle Black for sharing with us from the Word last week. He did a great job for us. And uh, what we'll be looking at today, we'll continue some of the themes that he kicked off for us last week. Uh, he kind of referenced it that, that we were kind of zeroing in on the, the meat of the book here. Um, when you stand back and, and look at the Gospel of Mark, sometimes people wonder, well, you know, is this just random stories uh, about Jesus and, and the guys he hung out with, or, or what's the, the greater meaning of this? Uh, but the, the Gospels we saw when we started, the story starts off saying that this is about the good news of the Son of God. And we are called to follow this Son of God, that He is the one that's going to set us free. He is the one that's going to make things right for us. This week, uh, the title is Follow the Ransom. And the, the word ransom, I think we immediately associate with kidnapping, right? That's normally how we think of it in our uh, day and age, just the way the word has evolved over time. But in the first century, that word ransom, more specifically, or, or maybe I should say more generally, would talk about any captive being set free. So it wasn't necessarily money that was paid to illegal kidnappers, but it was any sort of redemption, any sort of uh, bondage that was turned into freedom. The price for that was called a ransom. And so what we need to understand as we read the text is that spiritually we're not free. So the art this morning is uh, uh, bars being opened up, you know, like the idea of you've been in captivity, but now you are free to go. And, and I think more importantly than understanding the freedom, we have to back up a notch and recognize that we're not free spiritually. Naturally, there's a problem that we have. And that's really important to start off with, or you're not going to get what Jesus is talking about. It doesn't make sense that he's talking about freedom if you don't realize that there's some kind of bondage that you're in already. So I want to review, just go back a, a few weeks to what we looked at in, in Mark 7, and you don't have to turn there, but uh, just remember the bondage that Jesus describes in Mark 7. Jesus says in Mark 7.20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, right? This kind of sweeps away our understanding of religion that we can externally modify our behavior. That if I arrange the pieces on the chessboard right in my life, that I can be okay. And Jesus says, no, there's something internally broken. There's something wrong with all of us. And Jesus says it's the things that come out from the inside. That's what's wrong. He says what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder. He says all these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. And so we have to start there. We have to start with the recognition that we are broken. And we say this many times that uh, it's a first priority if you want to be a member of this church that you have to recognize that there's something wrong with you. We're not a gathering of people that, that think we're fixed. We're not a gathering of people that's turning to everybody else saying, you need to follow me and be just like me because I've got life all figured out. No, we're, we're one poor beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. Right? That's the way St. Francis used to like to say it. We, we are needy and we recognize our need and we recognize that Jesus is the solution. So that's what he's going to be talking about today in chapter 10. We'll start off reading verse 32 through verse 45. So Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. 
And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. I just want to pause there. Last week he he talked about uh, this idea that it's impossible to be saved. Right? What's impossible with man is possible with God, but, but they're still in shock. They're still amazed by this. Like us, they thought they could save themselves. We often think that. We often think, I can, I can do it. I can arrange my life in such a way that everything will be okay. And Jesus says, no, you can't. Better to give up now. It says they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. It's almost as if they didn't hear what he just said at all, right? He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be mocked. I will be killed. I will be condemned. They say, when you come into your glory, we want to sit at your right and in your left. Jesus said to him in verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them, said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, rulers of the other nations, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He's giving His life to set us free to set us free from this bondage that they are still in. They're still amazed that He even thinks they need to be set free. So I'm going to pray that God would teach us this morning that we would understand uh, the dire situation that we're in and the solution that Jesus offers. Let's pray. God, we thank You. We thank You that You are the God that offers Yourself. God, I pray this morning that You would give us eyes to see, that You would open our hearts so that we would recognize our need of You, that we would recognize the bondage that we are in and that we wouldn't be satisfied anymore with masking it. God, help us to stop putting band-aids on the outside, but help us to to come clean with You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I spent a lot of time uh, this weekend reviewing some movies that I'd seen before. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Ransom, a movie that came out in 1996. Great, gripping thriller uh, about a man who uh, basically gets angry at the abuse, the kidnapping that's happened to his own family. And instead of paying the ransom, he says, no, I'm going to put a bounty on the kidnapper's head. And in the end, he overcomes because he's uh, Mel Gibson and he's a stud. So in the end, right, he, he wins and he gets his kid back, right? Um, Along the way, we recognize that he's a flawed character and he has problems, but in the end, he wins. And in that movie, like a lot of action movies, we watch the movie and we enjoy the movie because it helps us to see ourselves in that character. Sure, he's flawed. Sure, he has some problems. 
but in the end he wins. Kind of like me, right? That's how I want to live my life. Sure, I've got some issues, got some problems, but in the end, I win. Um, there's this other movie I, we watched a few years ago, and ironically, we watched it right before we took our kids on a uh, mission trip to Mexico. This movie's called Man on Fire. Uh, the opening line of the movie is, like, every 24 hours, a child is kidnapped in Mexico City, or, you know, something like that. Going, oh, my gosh, why are we watching this movie? But anyway, we watched this movie right before going to Mexico, and everything turned out fine for us, but it's another movie about kidnapping. And in this movie, it's a little more Christian, a little more redemptive, right? Um, in this movie, it, it helps us to think a little more uh, about Jesus and the cost that he paid for us. Because although, although the character, the hero of the story, Denzel Washington, also like Mel Gibson, is a stud, and so in the end he wins. But in this movie, he's an even more flawed character, and he makes the ultimate sacrifice. He gives himself up to rescue the little girl. So a movie that kind of takes us a little step closer to seeing the picture of what Jesus is willing to offer. As I was thinking over it, though, I was thinking, you know what? Again, we tend to see ourselves as the hero in these stories. And I think it's better for us to recognize that we're the kidnapped kid. We're the one that needs to be set free. So often we want to be the hero, but we're the one that's locked up. I was on a camping trip uh, a while ago, and my kid didn't get kidnapped, I'll just say that up front. Um, I was on a camping trip uh, a while back, and we were, uh, my son was about five, I believe, at the time. Went camping, it had rained some, so my, my son had a great time playing in the mud. And uh, just he just was completely covered with it. And I have to admit, as a dad, I was kind of proud of him. You know, like, yeah, that's my boy, right? Just covered like, you know, like the uh, predator guy or whatever. Just kind of completely covered in, in mud. And I think I took a picture of him, you know, with his pocket knife covered, with his face covered in mud and stuff. Um, but I'd, I'd been married long enough at the time. You know, this was, what, eight years ago. So, you know, I'd already been married about ten years already. So I was smart enough to know I needed to clean him before I brought him back home, right? Um, I'm a good husband. So I, I thought, okay, well, I'll take a shower and check it out in the, in the showers here at the camping grounds, and then I'll put you in there, and you need to get cleaned up, and, you know, just do, do the best you can. And uh, at five, he already kind of knew how to operate a shower. But he was real worried about, like, someone coming in because it was kind of a public place. And so there was a latch you could latch on the shower door so nobody else could get in. So I, I latched that latch. I could kind of reach over the top and, and latch this up high latch so nobody else could go in. Um, but the problem was he couldn't really reach it either. So I just told him, well, I'll be right outside the door, and uh, I'll let you out when you're done. And uh, it was a church camping trip, and so I went outside to uh, fellowship with other people, which means like chat, right? So I'm chatting with some other people outside the camp showers, and I realize after about 30 minutes, like, where's my son? Like, what? What is going on? I don't know where he is. And then I remembered, oh no, I locked him in there. He can't, he can't get out. So I, I, I rushed back in, and I felt really bad because it's like 100 degrees outside, and he's in a non-air conditioned shower. So it's 100 and 10 plus 100% humidity in there. So I find my son, uh, he had been clean 30 minutes ago, but you know now he's all sweaty and red by the time I finally got him, but ap- apologized to him, and he was very forgiving. He's a, he's a good kid, and, and he was just so happy, though, to be set free, right? Because... <laughs> 
because he was he was locked in there and he couldn't get out. And so as I was thinking about this again, we we often get caught up in the whole kidnapping concept, and then my mind went to these action movies, and we think about what heroes we want to be, and our, our minds can can easily get distracted because as human beings, we don't want to recognize the reality that we are locked in. That we can't reach the latch. We can't break ourselves out of this bondage to sin that we find ourselves in. And I said this when, actually when we were on chapter 7 a few weeks ago. I said that Jesus often leaves us hanging. Right? Even last week, Jesus said it's impossible to be saved. And the disciples were amazed. I mean, the disciples had already been traveling with Jesus. You'd think their theology was more sophisticated, right? You'd think they were to a place where they could articulate uh, right views and right doctrine. But they, they thought they could do it themselves. They were thinking, what? We can't be saved? But we've been following you, and we thought by following you we were going to be saved, right? By us giving up everything, we were going to be saved. And Jesus said, yeah, you'll, you'll be rewarded for that, but it is impossible for man to be saved. It's only possible with God. It's only possible with God. And we need to come to terms with that too. You're not saved by showing up. You're not saved by giving to the church. You're not saved by being nice. You're not saved by being a good neighbor. You're saved by the ransom price that Jesus has paid. And so the first thing that we want to look at in this text is is that he had a plan. He, He knew the problem that we are in and he had a plan. The plan of the ransom. If you look at verse 32 again, he says, "...and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem." Um, whenever they are going to Jerusalem, it always says going up. Just a little, little insight into the New Testament. When we say up, we usually mean going north, right? Um, but Jerusalem was on a mountain, so they always say going up. They're actually going south at the time. They're going from the Sea of Galilee area to the, to the heart of Judea, which was Jerusalem. So I, I took the time to take a screenshot of my phone and map it out, right? So uh, this would be walking directions from Nazareth, the Galilee area, down to Jerusalem. We'll see in the next chapter they kind of pass through Jericho. Jericho would be um, kind of down on the right there where you see the little blue line. It says uh, one day seven hours if you're going to walk it, just so you know if you want to do this yourself sometime. Um, but I, I put this up here to give you the concept that, that this, there was a plan here, right? He, he knew where he was going. Jesus had it mapped out. Um, I'm I'm sometimes not a real directive person. I, I struggle with that. And uh, my wife, she laughed about it this morning. She's she's had to struggle to follow my lead because I'm not always a clear leader. Like when we go to an amusement park, um, I, this is kind of how I lead. Like we've got my family together. There's five of us, and I kind of lead like this. Like this is this is kind of the way I lead people, and I'm not that clear, right? That was my impression of, of wandering, just in case you. Didn't. Um, and so, one thing I've learned over the years is is to be more purposeful, right? To be more directive, to to think ahead. Where am I going, and how am I going to get there? And and what we see in this text is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus is not wandering like me. Jesus is not saying, oh, look, let's, you know, let's get a, some uh, french fries. Or, hey, look, there's a Ferris wheel. No, Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I have a plan. This is mapped out. This is not just some, not some haphazard thing, but Jesus has a plan. And He's explaining it to them. And we've talked about this. He's already explained it to them several times. And they continue to not get it. As I said, Martin Luther tells us that we have to have the gospel beat into our brains continually because we're going to keep thinking that we can save ourselves and that we don't need Jesus' plan. 
But Jesus says, no, I have a plan. And this is what is going to happen. So as they were going up to Jerusalem... Excuse me. Lost my place here. Verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him. This word condemn is a judicial word, right? He's saying, I will be judged by the rulers. This is not just, they're not going to like me and they're going to say mean things. No, I will be officially condemned. There will be a trial. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. This is his word just for the nations, for the non-Jews, right? I'll be given over to the pagan world. Verse 34, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Some of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. It was a big deal when it came out. Um, and it had a huge impact on a lot of people, just emotionally. You know, just seeing, seeing Him uh, be flogged, be mocked, be spit upon. Um, and my wife and I remarked, it, we, it, it was a moving movie. Uh, it did have an impact, but it, it wasn't quite that life-changing for us because we'd both been in churches growing up where uh, the Bible was taught real clearly and where this was described in great detail. He was killed for us. He was tortured for us. Our, our minds had already gone down that track. We were very aware of this reality. And Jesus continues to try to tell His disciples, and it's hard for His disciples to absorb, so I know it's hard for us as well, but... This is terrible. This is a terrible thing that Jesus went through for us. But he, he did it on purpose. And it's huge that we would understand that. We have to get that. That you're you're finding the right neighborhood, you're having the right relationship, you're finding uh, the right job is not gonna fix what's wrong with you. And, I struggle with this too. I think we all as humans struggle with this. I, I, keep think, I get up every morning and, and try to plan my life as if I can fix it. The things that we do to make the pain go away, the things that we do to secure our future are, are not going to do it. They're not going to fix what's wrong with us. And Jesus says there's this problem deep inside you that you can't fix on your own. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And he says, the Son of Man has a plan. Jesus has a plan. He is going to go and give Himself up for us. He will be killed. He will be condemned. And so the first stop is for us to recognize the plan that Jesus has. Are you still trying to work your own plan? Or are you to the point, the point of brokenness, where you're ready to give up on your plan? That's really the advantage, in a weird way, of going through hard things in life. Because often going through hard things in life are what it takes for us to give up on those false gods. That's what it takes for us to give up on the God of career, or the God of relationship, or the God of the perfect family, or the God of having enough money, or the God of comfort, the God of fun. Going through hard things is often us being broken of those false gods having them stripped away, realizing that, that they're not going to pay off. And Jesus is saying, He has a plan. He has a plan instead of these other things that you're looking for, for freedom. The next thing that we see is, again, how His disciples struggle to get it. His disciples struggle to accept it. He's calling us to accept His plan, His death, His substitution for us, Him paying the price for our sins. 
The way this can be simply summed up is that Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and He died a sacrificial death that we deserved to die. So that when God looks on you, if you trust in Him, He sees you as perfect, as forgiven. He sees you as His own Son, hidden in Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness in your place, clothing you. And He sees your sin condemned and put on Christ on the cross, paid for by what Jesus has done. Him dying in your place. But recognize this is something that's hard for all of us to get, right? It's hard for James and John to get. And James and John pick up in verse 35. Here I want us to look at the fellowship of the ransom. Uh, there's this movie that came out a while back called The Fellowship of the Ring. Right? There's these Tolkien books, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And in that, in that story, we get a better idea of what fellowship means. right? Because in that story, it's called The Fellowship of the Ring because it's this team of, of weird characters right? that come from different races and different, uh, whatever they are, species. I don't know what they are. You know, like a, a dwarf and an elf. And they're these different kinds of people, hobbits. They come together in fellowship to accomplish this goal. So that's really what fellowship is, right? In my story earlier, I was talking about chatting with people and calling that fellowship, right? We often think of fellowship as talking with people. Uh, or if you're Baptist, fellowship often means uh, like ice cream and fried chicken, I think, would be the, you know, kind of depending on your church background. It could mean talking. It could mean eating. But uh, what, what's the other? Macaroni and cheese, right? You know, we have different different translations depending on our backgrounds. But, but really what fellowship means is this partnership. It's like a business partnership. It's a team that's come together. So that's what it means when we talk about you being a member here of this church. That means you're partnering with us. You would say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I know that He's my only hope and I want to partner with this church to help bring that hope to other people in this community and, and throughout the world. And that's what we're called to as well. And, and so James and John have partnered with Jesus, but they still don't fully understand what it means. In verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Jesus says, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. It's really interesting. This phrase, one on the left, one on the right, appears twice in the Gospel of Mark. This this phrase appears twice, and the other place it appears is at the end of the story. And He's just told them where He's headed. He's told them where the end of the story is going to be. It's going to be on the cross. And so this phrase appears there where we're told that there are two other criminals that are crucified with Jesus, one on the left and one on the right. So we have kind of a literary theme here, a little echo in the text where we're told that that that's what it means to be on Jesus' left and on Jesus' right. It means to die with Him. And Jesus tells them, you don't really know what you're asking. But then He also tells them, but you know what? This is going to happen. If you are following Me, you are going to take part in My suffering. And so he says it this way, the end of verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant by James and John. So James and John are saying, basically, we want to be your prime minister. We want to be your secretary of state. right? We want to be on your right and left in your glory. And Jesus is saying, my glory is, is going to be in the cross. That, that's what it's going to mean to be at my right and my left. And then he says, you know what, it's, it's not for me to say if you get to be in that position, but you will share in my suffering. You will drink the cup. You will go through the baptism that I'm going to go through. Uh, if you want to just write down some references, there's references in the Old Testament to this concept of cup and baptism as judgment. Uh, and we see that. It's interesting. That reflects the sacraments that the church practices, right? Taking the cup and communion and taking on baptism. We often think of these as kind of happy symbols, but they're really judgment symbols as well. Recognizing, yes, that Jesus took the judgment for us, but they kind of have a dark shadow that they cast. Uh, in Isaiah 51, 17, it says, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. So it's used in the prophets to prophesy the judgment that's coming to His people. He calls it the cup, the cup of His wrath. And we see in Psalm 42 and Psalm 69 the imagery of, of the overwhelming flood, right, as judgment. It says in Psalm 42.7, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my, lo- my life. I say to my God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So one of the descriptions of the psalmist when he's saying, I am going through such terrible oppression as having the floodwaters come over them. Think back to the symbolism of the Exodus, right? That his people are brought through the floodwaters of death. That's part of how God saves people. Uh, Psalm 69, 1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So when we take the symbol of baptism, and I'm afraid I'm scaring people away from getting baptized next week, but when when we take that symbol, it is a death symbol. It's a death and resurrection symbol. And that's picked up in the New Testament too. And in Colossians it says we, we died with Him and we rise to new life with Him. That's part of the symbol that we're displaying. Not just washing. It's a washing symbol too, but it's both a washing symbol and a death and resurrection symbol. I had a picture of uh, a, a cup there. I don't know why I got a picture of a cup. You've all seen a cup before, right? I, I also had a picture there of, of floodwaters. Again, to give us that, that concept of, of baptism is, is not just this happy, celebration, but it's a putting to death of our old life. It's coming to the end of ourself, saying, I can't save myself. I can't do it. I need what Jesus has done for me. And so Jesus says, you know what, if you follow me, you are going to participate in this suffering. You're going to share in my suffering. Uh, this is This fellowship that we have with Jesus and His sufferings is Embodied by uh, Paul. Again, another reference that you might write down. I've just got two verses for you here. Paul talks in Colossians 1.24. He says that in his physical sufferings, as a servant of Christ, he's filling up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings. He says a part of what it means to be in partnership with Jesus, to be a follower of His, 
is to suffer yourself in a way that fills up what is lacking in Jesus' sufferings. And that sounds very strange to us when you read it just uh, in just the first read, because it almost sounds like Paul is saying, what Jesus did was not enough, so I've got to do some too, right? Um, but the, the construction is really one of delivering something. So filling up what's lacking means uh, bringing it to others. And we see this, a good cross-reference so that you can understand that, is Philippians 2.30. The same kind of construction is used in Philippians 2.30 to talk about a gift that was physically delivered from one church to another. And it says they were filling up what was lacking by delivering it. And so we have this concept that in our sufferings, we bring Jesus' sufferings to other people. That's part of what we do. We, we get to share in what Christ has done by sharing it with other people. So our sufferings don't atone, right? Our sufferings don't pay the ransom price. Our sufferings are not what ultimately give people freedom. It's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. But, but in our suffering, we're able to bring that to other people. As you struggle with your neighbors, as you cry with people that are hurting, as you struggle to serve people and to help people in difficult situations, God uses that difficulty that you're going through to share His goodness and the ultimate difficulty that Jesus went through to set us free. He uses that to share with others. So I want to encourage you, there's this great phrase they use in Celebrate Recovery that God never wastes a hurt. And there's a story in, in Genesis. The end of Genesis is about the life of Joseph. If you have been through terrible things and, and been abused and been hurt, I think you can find some inspiration in the life of Joseph. Joseph is this character that reminds us that terrible things really are terrible. It doesn't try to clean it up and say, oh, it's not really terrible. It doesn't do this kind of like evil's an illusion thing. No, it, it's terrible. Evil is evil. And, and God hates injustice. But what the Bible shows us at the end of Joseph's life, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God can use for good. God can turn for good what evil men have done in your life. And so I want to encourage you, I am by no means trying to justify the evil things that have happened to you. The abuse and the bad things that you've gone through are abuse. They are evil. But God can use those to help you to serve others. God can use those in your life so that you can be a blessing to other people. So that in your sufferings, you can deliver the sufferings of Christ for those uh, that need to hear and know of the grace that Jesus has for them. Well, the last thing that we see in this section uh, is the results of the ransom. What we see is that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't leave us where we are. The, the ransom sets us free and we actually get up and get out of our cell. Then we begin to live in freedom. And freedom, as it's defined by Jesus, is serving other people. Freedom is serving other people. And I've used this uh, analogy quite a bit, uh, just thinking in sports terminology. Um, if you've been healed and you've uh, maybe gone and seen the trainer, you haven't been able to play, and now you're healthy, you're now healthy so that you can play. You're not healthy so that you can do whatever you want to and goof off and uh, hurt the team and cause problems, right? You're, you're now healthy so that you can play. And that's what freedom means in the New Testament. We've been set free not to serve sin, but to serve others, to serve God, to live in righteousness. That's what our freedom is for. And so that's what Jesus describes uh, back in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. So... 
James and John uh, just wanted position, right? They wanted to be important. Verse 42, Jesus called them to Him and He said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles or the nations lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, this is not how it's going to go down. It's not going to be like this with you. For everyone else, they, they rule by lording it over people, by dominating. But in the church, my people will be great through service. This Greek word is literally deaconing, right? So when we nominate deacons, we're saying these are servants of the church. And he says, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. To give His life, to set people free. When you absorb that, when you receive that, right? In John 1 it says, Yet to all who received Him, to all who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. What it means to be a child of God is to follow in Jesus' footsteps. That you would actually serve other people. It doesn't mean holding on to your rights and holding on to your own self-importance. It means being set free from that. You don't walk into a room any longer having to prove yourself. You walk into the room able to take the towel and, and serve others as the, the picture is given to us in John chapter 13, right? Uh, Jesus there takes the towel and He washes His disciples' feet. Such a epic picture of service, right? That some churches actually have translated that into a sacrament. Some churches even use foot washing as a sacrament. And we would believe that we're supposed to follow His example uh, in a culturally appropriate way, right? Most of us uh, take showers every day and don't wear sandals every day. So we don't need foot washing, right? But we may need someone to cry with us when uh, we've gone through some terrible ordeal. We may need someone to help us out financially when we're in trouble. We may need someone to counsel us, right? There's, there's different ways that you can serve people. But Jesus gives us that example in John 13. And what's so cool in John 13 is it tells us that before He did that, it says He knew who He was and He knew where He was going. And so that that applies to this text we're looking at today. Jesus is saying, if you understand the ransom price that I've paid for you, that I've come not to serve myself but to serve you, that's going to propel you to serve each other. You're not going to lead the way other people lead, but you're going to serve other people. You're going to be set free for service. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's one of my favorite statues. It's a statue they have at Dallas Theological Seminary. as this giant bronze statue of Jesus kneeling and washing His disciples' feet. Um, I came from a church where all the staff went to Dallas Theological Seminary. I, since I grew up there and been kind of mentored by all these guys, I, I ended up going to a different seminary. I was kind of the black sheep, I guess, in that way. Um, went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. But I always loved, we, you know, we made visits for different meetings and things at the seminary. I love that statue. So I thought that's, that's great that that's at the center of this place of learning. But they're learning how uh, to lead God's people, and that's the picture they have at the center. But that's what it means is kneeling down and serving others. God's going to give you a lot of opportunities to do that. We, we give you ways to do that in our, our bulletin, right? We always have these opportunities, opportunities to serve. We have a blue insert. gives you opportunities to check off. You can check off these boxes and drop it in uh, that offering box in the back. We're going to continue to lay before you opportunities to serve. Now, this doesn't mean that we're looking over your shoulder, right, and saying, well, if you haven't checked off this 
box serve, I don't, I don't know about you, right? But I would say that you need to have that internal conversation in your own heart. Are you serving other people? Now, now we, don't, we don't have some kind of test where you have to serve this many times per week, right? You could be serving completely outside of the organized functions of this church. But, but you've got to be serving. If you're not serving other people, you need to question if you understand that Jesus has come to serve you. You need to question if you understand the ransom that Jesus has paid for you. If your life is, is not a life that translates into service of others, again, I'm not, I'm not talking about check-the-box organized stuff here. It could, be, it could be stuff that I don't know about, but, but you need to ask that question. Are you serving other people? Because if you're not, you need to readdress, do I understand how Jesus has served me? Because over and over again, the New Testament says that if you come to terms with that, if you've met Jesus, His love for you is going to propel you to love other people. His service to you is going to propel you to serve other people. And so that's the question for us this morning. Are you serving?